it's New Year's Day here on the border And it's always been this way I never do the things I order I think I'll stay, it's New Year's Day Good morning, good morning, good morning, sweet, beautiful Texas and beyond. Of course, it had to be Charlie Robinson, New Year's Day, kicking things off for us here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. I'm Cable Smith. Happy New Year's to you and your family. I hope that 2018 is a banner year for you, both on the water and in the woods, but more importantly, just in life in general. Uh, I'm excited about it. I've got my New Year's resolutions made, uh, and hopefully you've got some of your own. But anyway, you are tuned in to the Lone Star Outdoors show, powered, of course, by Dallas Safari Club. Uh, thanks to our presenting sponsors, Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. We appreciate their support, and I appreciate each and every one of you for being here today, as we've got a great show lined up for you. A pretty diverse one, I do believe, uh, one that I'm excited about. So, you know what to do by now. Pull up that stool a little closer to the campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old Stanley Thermos, the green one. Yep, the one with mud caked on it from the 2012 duck season. Uh, it's probably still got coffee residue from that season in there as well. Maybe you spike it with Grandpappy's cough syrup. Maybe you don't. That's up to you. Uh, but we are ready to rock and roll. So off the top, uh, we're going to visit with Dallas Safari Club Executive Director Corey Mason. We've got a few things to get in with Corey. Uh, number one... The convention, Legacy, 2018 convention, is taking place next week. That's DSC's annual shebang. It's the greatest hunters convention on the planet. I'll be out there all four days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Hopefully you have plans to come out there as well. Uh, so we're going to get into that. And then also, uh, I think we're going to talk a little hippo hunting, something that Corey has had the opportunity to do over in Tanzania. And then uh, the grizzly bear ban in British Columbia, just a completely asinine band that defies science and logical, science-based wildlife conservation. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that as well. Then we're going to talk some white-tailed deer with the Quality Deer Management Association. Uh, that's the QDMA. Uh, their conservation director, Kip Adams, will be here, and we'll, we'll actually take a look at the inside of a white-tailed deer's stomach and why... It might be a bad idea, possibly even lethal, to feed white-tailed deer corn, that's bagged corn, uh, during the coldest weather months of the year. And there are the, there are some do's and don'ts when it comes to that, uh, especially in northern extreme cold climates. Uh, so we're going to get into that with Kip. Uh, after that, Dr. Louis Harvison of the Borderlands Research Institute over at Sol Ross State in far west Texas. Uh, he'll jump on with us. There's a, a recent short film called The Lions of West Texas, produced by Finn and Fur Productions, I think, is the name of their company. But anyway, uh, it's it chronicles about a 17-year study on mountain lions in West Texas. It's like this bastion where they've just been holding on for years and years and years even though we've seen mountain lions lose their historic range throughout much of texas and and uh, the southern uh, united states um, but they've never gone away from those mountains out in west texas and uh, and they might even be expanding their range uh, but we'll talk about those lions what they eat uh, 
They visited over 200 kill sites throughout this study, uh, so I found that very fascinating. Also, they have an extremely high mortality rate, and uh, we'll discuss all that with Dr. Harvison uh, regarding those West Texas mountain lions. Uh, then we will wrap up the broadcast, and I will go on a, a little bit of a rant because while I was in Colorado um, hunting my own mountain lion, uh, my outfitter, my good friend Wayne Pinnell, handed me a newspaper, and on the front page was an article that just had me incensed. And it was uh, titled, Colorado Needs Wolves and Wolves Need Colorado. Uh, and there's an organization called the Sierra Club that claims to be conservation-oriented, but that flies in the face of uh, what they're trying to do by reintroducing gray wolves to Colorado. We've seen that it doesn't work. <laughs> it has been an epic failure from a conservation standpoint. Yes, the wolves are thriving, but everything else is suffering. And uh, so I will break that down for you here at the bottom of the hour. That's what's on the docket for today. It's going to be a good one. A couple other things to mention. Our 2017 photo of the year grand prize contest will open up on Wednesday. I will have the 12 monthly winners from this past year posted on the website. You can vote for your favorite, and the winner ultimately will join me on a trophy axis deer or black buck hunt down at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas, this March. Uh, so vote for your favorite and then uh, start thinking about the photo you want to send in for January 2018. And I haven't announced the prize yet, but I will next week. Uh, let's do a quick giveaway here. How about with DSC coming up? How about a pair of tickets? That's a $40 value. A pair of tickets to the upcoming convention. I'll throw in a Dallas Fire Club cap and T-shirt. All you have to do is text in the word conservation. That's conservation to 214-289-7807, and you can win the DSC tickets, cap, and T-shirt. Uh, let's take a break. Up next, we'll be joined by DSC Executive Director Corey Mason right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Do you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease? We have the solution. The System Hog Trap comes in two sizes, 17-foot and 30-foot diameter traps. After you trap the hogs, take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder. The system is both a trap and a deer food plot fence. That way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap. Call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com. That's goinfencing.com. Cable Smith here for Deerview Windows. As a whitetail hunter, nothing is more frustrating than poor visibility in a deer blind. It can flat ruin a hunt. At Deerview Window Company, they manufacture windows solely for the use in deer stand and deer blinds. All of their windows and doors can be custom made to fit your specific openings. Or you can select from standard sizes, from hinged windows to sliding windows and everything in between. Visit DeerviewWindows.com to determine which style window is best for your deer blind. Plus, you'll get a free quote. Deerview Windows, where visibility matters. Hey, it's Cable for DontTradeItIn.com. 
If you've got an old four-wheel drive vehicle that you don't need anymore or you want to upgrade your daily driver or hunting rig to a newer one, DontTradeItIn.com wants your vehicle running or not. Their purchase process is quick, easy, and painless. Answer a few questions and get a cash offer in no time. They'll beat CarMax and dealership buy bids, guaranteed. Head over to DontTradeItIn.com or call or text Justin at 469-300-9669. That's 469-300-9669. Howdy friends, Cable Smith here, and many of you have seen my pictures throughout the last hunting season of my Custom 7 mag. That rifle was built by Horizon Firearms. Horizon Firearms is a custom rifle builder here in Texas, located in College Station, and they specialize in extremely accurate custom rifles designed exactly the way you want them. Give them a call at 979-229-4664 or check them out at horizonfirearms.com. Mama, I'm hurting in the worst way. I got no money in my pocket, no place to stay. That's the music of Justin Towns Earl bringing us back in on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith riding shotgun with you. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Uh, thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players, as always. Uh, we have got. A great topic to get into here momentarily. Actually, we're going to get into quite a few things with Dallas Safari Club's Executive Director, Corey Mason, including hippo hunting in Africa and uh, the upcoming Dallas Safari Club convention, among other things. But first, this segment of the presentation is proudly brought to you by my good friends Josh and Becky Gunther over at Rustic Reminders Taxidermy in Marion, Texas. Now with another location in San Antonio to better serve you. That's right, two locations. They do amazing work. They've been taking care of all of my taxidermy from speckled trout to black bear to whitetail to now mountain lion and everything in between. Uh, they answer the phone when I call, and their work is impeccable. Check them out at gr8mounts.com. That's gr8mounts.com. All right, uh, well, let's go ahead and welcome our old friend from the uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife days, uh, as he was a regional director with TPWD for some time. And so, no stranger to the show, uh, now he's the executive director of Dallas Safari Club after a recent a shift in career paths. It's my pleasure to welcome Corey Mason back to the show. Thanks for having me, Cable. Good to visit with you. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, this is the craziest time of the year. Uh, we're coming out of the holidays, which means we are right smack dab approaching uh, our 2018 convention legacy, uh, which I'm certainly excited about. It's my favorite show every year. And, and, and I wanted to ask you, um, you know, throughout your career with Texas Parks and Wildlife before taking this new position, were you ever able to make it to one of these shows? Yeah, thanks for asking. You know, I never made it as an exhibitor, uh, but for many, many years, uh, I guess dating back to market hall days, I attended as uh, just a general public off the street and was there to, you know, look and admire and all those kind of good things. So I have seen the show, but certainly from a different perspective. Sure, sure. Um, Okay, so I guess what, it's been about four months now? How long have you been at the helm of uh, DSC? It is. I came to DSC in September. Uh huh. And and one other thing I wanted to ask you because obviously you have a, a very strong background in in wildlife management and administration um, with Texas Parks and Wildlife. But 
Had you ever been to Africa uh, prior to taking over? Um, I know because I know you went to the uh, to the FASA meeting here recently and some various other stuff over there. I did. I've had the privilege to actually hunt in Africa a couple of times, uh, and I've been to uh, Tanzania specifically on hunting safaris, and then most recently, like you mentioned there, to South Africa and Namibia for business. Mm-hmm. Okay, and let me ask you this: what uh, what were your give me your top two favorite things that you you've hunted over there? Yeah, so uh, I had the opportunity to hunt Cape Buffalo, and that was, that was thrilling, obviously. Uh, and then behind that, I would say hippo. That was a very, very thrilling hunt as well. Oh, cool. Yeah, hippo. So do you – and I'm, I'm interested because I'm, I'm putting together my list of uh, species that, that I want to target. And, and, you know, there's no guarantee when you go to Africa. The thing is you take what Africa gives you. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm maybe interested in, in hunting hippo. Do you wait for them to come – um, out of the water, or do you? How do, how does that play out uh, on a hippo hunt? Yeah, there's a couple of ways that they traditionally hunt hippo, and it's uh, a dry land, like you mentioned. Sometimes it's kind of pools off the river, mm-hmm. uh, and then those, and then there's the traditional hunt that's kind of in rivers proper. Uh, you know, one offers you the opportunity to be more selective than the other. Sure. So it sort of depends on the hunting style and the opportunities provided to you. Uh, we, my hunting was along a river as well, and some of the hippos were you know, coming out of the river and coming back to the river, eating as well early in the morning, of course. And uh, so we had a great experience hunting hippo. And then, of course, once you get a hippo, uh, it is true that the work starts. It's, it's an amazing thing. And, uh, you know, folks going out and get the hippo out of the water where there's other hippos and crocs everywhere. And it's a, <laughs> it is a great experience for sure. Yeah. Well, and you've mentioned two very dangerous species there. Obviously, Cape Buffalo, nicknamed the Black Death. It, it does kill quite a few hunters. pH is... Uh, we've had one last year uh, that was killed, and then, but the hippo, uh, I believe, actually kills more people in Africa uh, than than any other animal, save the mosquito. Yeah, so. they're quite dangerous animals. You know, their their tendency is simply to just run through something, uh, and when someone gets between them and water, that's when it gets quite dangerous. Obviously, uh, the response is to retreat back to water, uh, as well as you know, when obviously if you're hunting hippo and. It, uh, you're, you know, if you're close up close with those kinds of animals, and they're very large animals, you know, their response is just to uh, just to run through. And so, yeah, there can be a, a number of incidents associated with hippos for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, interesting. Okay, so that, that's fascinating. Uh, just to know, get to know you a little bit more as far as your hunting background. Um, let's uh, let's let's mention one other thing before we talk about the convention, though. Uh, because I've you know I've read the press releases and and DSC has been on the forefront speaking out against the British Columbia uh, grizzly bear ban. And now, uh, Corey, we had an outfitter on prior to that election, which changed everything in B.C. Um, a specific political party was put into place, and they kind of ran on the platform of, hey, if we get a, if we get elected, we're going to ban grizzly hunting. Well, I'll be damned, they got elected. And the first thing they did was ban the trophy hunting, so you know, you or I couldn't go to B.C. and hunt. And then they took it a step further, and, and the residents of B.C., weren't aware that this was going to happen, but uh, now you can't even hunt one if you're a resident of BC unless you're a Native American. Uh, So they really did a number on that deal. And and I'll let you talk a little bit about why this flies in the face of conservation. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. I appreciate you bringing this up. It's a really unfortunate decision. Again, it's just strictly political and even take that one step further, an emotional decision, because it really goes against the face of science because there is adequate science there. Actually, DSC has helped fund some of that science. Uh, and the fact that uh, grizzly, bar, grizzly bear numbers are not uh, they're not challenged, they're not in any, any way compromised there. Grizzly bear numbers are, are solid. 15,000. Uh, exactly. <laughs> stable to increasing, exactly. And so 
the fact is that, that science was not used uh, to direct this decision. Um, and so it was based on an emotional platform. And the, I, I guess to me, even the greater concern is, you know, the next step potentially for that poli- potential political party, because they're not basing this on something that's defensible. Science mm-hmm. is defensible. It does tell us that, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of take that is allowable, permissible, uh, these types of uh you know, large megafauna as well. Uh, you know, we strongly support a well-regulated science-based hunting program, um, and, and this flies in the face of that. And it's unfortunate because the decision was made, uh, again, completely emotional, and it, it's not it's essentially not defensible as well. Yeah. Well, and, and here's the thing about when you talk about animals like grizzlies or black bear or even alligator, hunters are targeting mature boars. And one of the highest mortality factors in in those populations, those species specifically, is predation or territorial killings, mature males of, of younger uh, cubs and, and even females and, and younger males. So when you say, hey, we're going to go take out the mature boars, you're actually helping the population's vitality. Yeah, you know, in many of those cases, and some of the examples you used, if you use these, again, these megafauna species, if it's grizzly bear or if it's elephant or if it's lion or whatever it is, on a percentage basis, the offtake that hunters take, again, recognizing that it's very targeted, it is mature post-breeding uh, males mm-hmm. nearly in every case, uh, it is a very small percentage. In some cases, it's less than 1% on a population basis. And so it, it, it is, it's just negligible and, and indiscernible, if you will. And so it's very unfortunate because it is very sustainable. Those hunting programs that are based on science, that are well-regulated, quota-driven, and when that is followed, they are sustainable through time and that return on the conservation dollars that come back for the benefit of those species as well as the benefit of all the other species. And many of those are non-game species that benefit from those dollars being returned, thus the large intact blocks of wilderness or forest or whatever else that comes from that are compromised as well, and that's incredibly unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every every species loses when those dollars right. are taken away. Um, well, uh, well, well said, my friend. Let's uh, Let's talk a little bit about legacy, though. The uh, convention, DSE's annual show, is taking place January 4th through the 7th. That's next week. It is going down at the K. Bailey Hutchinson Convention Center downtown Dallas, where it's uh, been for years and years. And I know we have over, I think, 1,850 exhibitors from uh, or exhibits from all over the globe. Yeah, we do. We'll have people from, uh, from literally every corner of the world, uh, from Africa to Asia to the South Pacific, obviously North America into Alaska, Canada, East and West, uh, fishing trips, hunting trips, uh, you know, all of those associated with outdoor associated products, if it's optics or firearms or uh, just products associated with the hunt as well, if it's, if it's uh, you know, clothing, et cetera, artists, it, it is. It's, you know, 800,000 square foot of anything that should be interesting to a hunter or angler. Right, right. Well, and I'll tell you personally, my favorite thing is just visiting with all of the outfitters from all over the globe. And uh, in the last four years, I've booked um, an Alberta black bear hunt, Colorado mountain lion hunt. A um, I've gone the South Africa thing was through DSC uh, with John X Safaris, one of our longtime exhibitors. And then I booked a trap line adventure in British Columbia three years ago. I guess it was it's a pretty hot item and, and it fills up fast. And I will actually be going on that January 30th of this year. So uh, those are just some of the things that I've personally you know, um, booked as a result of this show. And, and that's just, that's not even scratching the surface as far as everything that's available there. 
I think it's a great point, Cable, is the fact that, you know, if, if people are looking for something, if they're simply interested in it to learn more about it, or they're interested in booking a hunt, you know, if it's, if it's a bird hunt anywhere around the world, or if it's white-tailed deer in Texas or in North America, if it's elk, if it's pronghorn, red stag in New Zealand, caribou, Sitka, uh, blacktail, or if it's a grizzly bear hunt, or if it's something on the other side of the world, it, it is well represented there. Fishing trips around the world, eh, it is. There's there's something for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Well, good deal. Well, hey, uh, Corey, we will see you out at Legacy 2018, January 4th through the 7th. Uh, we're certainly excited about it. It's one of my favorite weekends. It's a long weekend. It's four days. Uh, but it's one of my favorite events of the entire year. You get to see familiar faces that you only maybe see once a year because these people come from every corner of the world and, and they converge here in Dallas, and uh, it's it's a hell of a good time. Great time. I look forward to seeing everybody in Cable. Thank you for the opportunity. All right. Take care, Corey. Appreciate it. Thanks much. All right. Dallas Safari Club Executive Director Corey Mason. Always enjoy visiting with him and uh, truly her relationship that goes back seven eight years um as he was a higher up with texas parks and wildlife for uh yeah, pretty much the entire time that our show has been on the air uh, so no stranger to the lone star outdoor show now just in a different capacity that segment by the way brought to you by sendero seed company texas premier seed company offering anything and everything you need to keep a happy and healthy whitetail herd including the Dr. Deer-backed Buck Forge Oats. Check them out at SenderoSeed.com. Let's take a break. Up next, can feeding white-tailed deer corn during cold weather months actually be lethal to them? We discuss next with QDMA's Kip Adams right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Like kisses go with back roads, like blue goes with sky, like church goes with Sunday, Hey y'all, Cable here for Three Curl Outfitters, and whether you want to bow hunt hogs or get after them with thermal imaging and night vision, under the cover of darkness, Three Curl has you covered. They've got the latest and greatest thermal imaging and night vision technology. They hunt unlimited, I mean just thousands upon thousands of acres of ag fields, or if you're a bow hunter and you want to sit in a stand and wait for the hog to come to you, uh, they can do that as well. Check it out, 3curl.com to book your next hog hunt. I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Please keep buying your Polaris products from us. Send us your friends, your neighbors, all your hunting buddies, and I promise we'll keep giving the best deals on a brand new Polaris in all of Texas. Whether you're looking for a Polaris for work or play, whether you need a regular Ranger or maybe a Ranger Crew, an RZR, they've got an all-new Ace 
race that you need to come test drive. We've also got four-wheelers from a youth model all the way up to the all-new Sportsman 1000. For your Polaris headquarters, Hoff Powers Outdoor Superstore in Gulfweight, Texas is who you need to see all or get on the web and contact today. You can check us out at hpolaris.com. That's H's in Hoff Power, polaris.com. Or you can come see us at Highway 84 West in Gulfweight, Texas. And folks, Hoff Powers has been in Central Texas for over 50 years now, and we couldn't have stuck around this long if we were steering you wrong. Hey y'all, Cable here for my good friends over at Outlaw Outfitters. This veteran-owned and operated outfit will put you on the ducks, to say the least. I've been hunting with them for, gosh, four or five years now. They also do uh, deer, hog, and turkey as well. They have over 15,000 acres they hunt in Collin, Grayson, and Fannin counties. Whether you want to do a turnkey, you know, one-morning waterfowl hunt, or a complete weekend package with authentic Cajun cooking and lodging, it's all right there within an hour of the Metroplex, and you can find them at huntoutlaw.com. If I'm going down, I'm going down in flames. From this moment on, there ain't nothing gonna be the same. We want things for certain. Everybody's down in flames, little Stony LaRue bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoors show powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm Cable Smith. Uh, thanks to our presenting sponsors, Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players. Thanks to you guys and gals for being here as well. Uh, we're about to talk some whitetails, uh, specifically do's and don'ts when it comes to feeding. Uh, but before we do that, this segment of the show brought to you by All Seasons Feeders. Check out their 600-pound stand and fill. No more ladders, no more back in your pickup bed, up next to the feeder. Nope. You stand there on your own two feet that God gave you, and you fill it up. Also available in a 300-pound model. Check it out at allseasonsfeeders.com. All right, uh, well, let's go ahead and bring on our next guest. He is the Conservation Director of the Quality Deer Management Association. And so here to talk winter whitetail deer nutrition, it's my pleasure to welcome Kip Adams to the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Kevin. I appreciate being here. Yeah, yeah. Well, happy New Year to you and your family. Uh, and the same to you. I hope you're having a great holiday season. Oh, I know you've got little ones, and and so do I. So uh, it's it's been crazy, but in a good way. That certainly makes uh, Christmas a whole lot of fun. Yeah, uh, Henry, my my five year old son, got his uh, he got a a Daisy BB gun for Christmas. So he should have seen his his look on his face when he opened that last present. <laughs> oh, good deal. That's, that's a rite of passage. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a big day. Yep. Um, well, hey, first of all, let's let's talk a little bit about the QDMA as far as what is the Quality Deer Management Association's purpose and, and mission. Well, we're um, a 501c3 nonprofit wildlife conservation organization that we really specialize in white-tailed deer and, uh, and, in, and ensuring our future of hunting the deer. So our mission is to make sure that we have you know high-quality white-tailed deer populations and good habitat and, uh, and protect our hunting heritage and. You know, a lot of times uh, folks forget about the hunting heritage part of that, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal for us to make sure that, you know, we have deer that are out there on the landscape and that uh, the hunters have the opportunity to pursue them. So uh, that's, uh, that's our purpose. Okay, and is this uh, an individual-based uh, organization? Like, can I just sign up and join if I wanted to? It is, yeah. We're member-based. Uh, we have members uh, in every state in the U.S. and, uh, and across Canada and in several foreign countries. 
So, um, yes, it's, it's membership-based, just like uh, NWTF or Ducks Unlimited, um, but, uh, you know, it's for deer hunters, and, uh, and that's a good thing. You know, there's four times as many deer hunters uh, as, as the next most popular species that we hunt, so uh, much of what we have from wildlife management uh, conservation and then our wildlife management programs, uh, much of that are right off the back of deer hunters, so uh, that, that's pretty special and something that deer hunters should certainly look, uh, look up for. Mm-hmm. And as far as the conservation machine and, and what funds it for the QDMA, is it uh, mostly like banquets or um, individual donations? It's a little bit of a lot of things like that. We have about 200 uh, local branches uh, um, or chapters. Uh, we call them branches, but most people you know, under, or recognize the, the local groups like that as chapters uh-huh. across the United States and Canada. And each one of those has a, has a banquet, so that certainly helps. Um, membership dollars help. Um, lots of corporate support, um, corporate sponsors. Um, we have donors. So similar to, to many of the other conservation organizations, sure. how uh, the money comes in. So, uh, one thing that's different with QDMA that I'm very proud of is we have all of our branches do an annual fundraising event each year, but we also require that they host uh, at least one educational event each year. It might be a, an evening seminar or a field day or a youth hunt or, or something along those lines, and that kind of separates us from many of the other groups and uh, something that I'm super proud of that, uh, that our, you know, we are that into the educational end or the sharing of, uh, you know, of knowledge and, and hunting opportunities. So that's uh, pretty neat. It makes us special. Sure. Absolutely. Well, um, wh- what are your responsibilities with the QDMA as far as the Director of Conservation goes? Uh, I oversee our, our education and outreach program. Um, so basically everything that QDMA does falls to within uh, one of five core elements, uh, that being uh, research, um, education, advocacy, um, our certification programs, or our hunting heritage, which is our youth program. So uh, I oversee that, so I uh, get my hands in a lot of different pieces. Uh, any research projects uh, that we're either involved in or helping support, you know, I, I help secure the funding for those and then and, uh, detail how some of those projects are are created or are carried out. Um, I get to see a development of educational programs, um, do a lot of writing for us. So uh, I, uh, I'm very fortunate. I get to see a bunch of different aspects of, of uh, the important parts to make sure that the conservation machine continues to run. And uh, I get to oversee uh, those and, and work with some great people along the way. Okay. And, and Kip, um, I wanted to get into a specific topic today, but I did want to ask you, you know, first of all, uh, how has your whitetail season been? Oh, well, you have had a tremendous season. Uh, I have an 11-year-old daughter that uh, I shot her first deer uh, this year on the opening day of our archery season. Oh, wow. Uh, so that made our whole season there. Yeah. Uh, she then shot her first buck on the opening day of our rifle season. Um, have uh, some young nephews uh, that I was actually with uh, to mentor them when uh, when they got to shoot uh, a few deer this year. So uh, I added uh, a couple deer of my own, but that was just uh, icing on the cake. Uh, <laughs> sure. My daughters and my nephews, uh Deer is what made the entire season. Oh, that's so cool. Well, and and you know you live this, passing it down, uh, both in your career and and obviously in your in your home life as well. As far as that hunting heritage is concerned, so kudos to you. Um, what I wanted to talk about today specifically is is winter feeding, which I believe stems from two sources. Number one, people who whether it's in you know a slightly urbanized area or otherwise, but Folks out there who think that they are saving deer from starving by feeding them corn. And then the second group, obviously, is going to be hunters who are trying to keep deer in a specific area. 
And I've read multiple pieces where you've said that winter feeding of corn, either by piles of corn or by feeders, can actually be lethal for deer. And, and I guess it's the term, is it called acidosis? Deer certainly can get acidosis, yeah. Okay. Um, we'll, we'll talk about the negative, of you know, um, potential negative outcomes of, of feeding corn during extremely cold weather. So, you know, that's, this topic, it seems like the simplest thing in the world that, man, you know, when, when deer need food the most, if I just feed them, then, uh, then I'm helping. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> if, if it's done properly, you certainly can help. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people don't do it properly, and then they end up causing uh, more harm than good. And it really stems from, from how deer are built. Um, you know, deer have the ability to eat a lot of different items, and they do. There's research showing, you know, over 600 different uh, items that they found, you know, deer eat. And uh, all this stems from deer have to have a certain microflora in their stomach to be able to digest the food that they're eating. Mm-hmm. Now, the ability of, for them to eat a whole bunch of different things helps them adapt to all these different environments that they can live in and make do in really hard times. So when they start eating a new food, they have to eat that for about two weeks to get all of that microflora changed over so that they can actually draw the nutrients from it. So where you get into trouble, particularly with corn, is we get into winter, especially in the north. So it's not not nearly as severe in the south, Mm -hmm. but especially in the northern U.S., where deer are eating browse and twigs and that kind of thing, just real low-quality items, their stomach is all geared to trying to digest that. Where you run into trouble is when they are used to this real low-quality diet, and then you give them something real high-energy, like corn, it can shock their system. And what it does is it shocks all that microflora in their stomach. That's where the term you used, acidosis, comes from. Trying to switch over from a real low-quality food to a real high-quality food very quickly shocks the deer system, and in extreme cases can actually kill them. Hmm. So uh, that's where, in many cases, it's more harm than good trying to help those deer. Well, and I'd also imagine that just from a potential disease outbreak scenario, you've got deer that are naturally spread out in an area, and then you concentrate them at one food source. They're licking and eating that same food source. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that uh, you know, that could have adverse results as well. No, that's right. And and so for folks, you know, if, if they're going to feed, um, they're just adamant. Like, I'm going to feed. You're not going to tell me I can't. Yeah. Well, and I'm that guy. I'm going to do I mean, as long as it's legal, I'm going to do it. Yeah. Oh, uh, and the keys to that are um, making sure that you start feeding deer whatever you're going to feed them during the winter, um, you know, early in the winter or during fall, so that their bodies have a chance to get used to that before they get into the really hard, you know, times, either deep snow or real cold or, or whatever the case may be. So if you ease them onto any food, whether it's, you know, corn in winter or, you know, or, or clover in the spring, anything, deer do much better if they are eased onto it. And then the real important part from corn in winter is once they are eating that, um, don't pull it away from them before spring. Mm-hmm. You know, go all the way into spring green up with it and just then let the deer tell you when they don't need it anymore by, you know, stopping coming to the feeders or, or stopping eating as much of it. So Sure, sure. Ease them on and don't pull it out from under them in the winter are the two really big things yeah. for a winter feeding of corn. Well, I, and I guess it would shock their system the other way if they're going from a corn diet and then they've got to go back to eating these low-quality browse, low quality browse feed, um, especially up in the north where, like you said, everything's covered in snow. And so, like, you look at a twig, it doesn't look like there's a lot of nutrients in that thing. 
That's right. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't hurt them as bad going the other way because even with all that corn there, they continue to browse mm-hmm. on that other things as well. Um, so yeah. they're they are still used to that. They're still getting some of that. But uh, but you're right. Yeah, you don't want to pull that rug out from under them when they need it the most. Yeah. Well, and I've seen uh, reports where you know groups of as much as like six or even a dozen deer have been found dead. Um, I think one of the most recent ones was in New Jersey a couple of years ago, and then. They had autopsies done on them, and then it was this acidosis that had killed them. Um, basically, the corn shocked their system. Uh, have there been any reported cases that you know of further south, say like you know Texas, for example? I haven't seen any cases there, and uh, doesn't mean that it hasn't happened. It's much less likely, though, just because you guys don't have, or at least most of the state doesn't have, the real severe uh, winters like you know, much of the north can have. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. so no, I have not seen it there. Um, one thing it's, you touched on, too, finding these dead deer in these piles around these feed sites, um, many people don't realize is that in a lot of cases, predation rates are much higher around these feed sites. And uh, when I was in, I've actually been with QDMA for over 15 years now. But prior to that, I was the state of New Hampshire's deer and bear biologist. So in New Hampshire Fish and Game, every winter we would go and, you know, and do winter health checks on deer as they're in these uh, heavy uh, coniferous forests, you know, these deer yards that they call them in the north. And... Uh, Every place, or I should say, almost every place where people were feeding deer, we found a lot more dead deer from uh, from coyote predation, uh, mostly, but also from domestic dog predation. Oh yeah. Uh, and the idea is, you know, deer survive by you know they're, they're spread out, and it makes it much more difficult for predators to kill them. However, at these feed sites where you're bringing them right in, uh, predators learn that very quickly. In uh, in New Hampshire, in and around these areas, coyotes were far more successful. At, uh, at killing deer, you know, once they could get deer cornered into some of these smaller areas. So from a feeding end, people need to realize, too, that just to be careful, is, you know, you're not only bringing deer into those sites. In many cases, you're attracting uh, predators as well that can be more successful at killing those deer you're trying to feed. Yeah, and I can't tell you how many times I've just been sitting at a feeder, and whether it's deer or, or quail coming in, and next thing you know, we've got quail to feeder, and here comes a bobcat. You know, and I'm just sitting in a deer stand watching this bobcat slink in there, and like he's probably do, does every afternoon and tries to make a meal out of one of those quail. You know, <laughs> oh, you're right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And uh, and then we have we don't have a lot of mountain lions in Texas, but uh, every year, you know, three or four get shot in South Texas by deer hunters who just happen to see a mountain lion stalking deer at their deer feeder. You know, so like you oh. said, those predators do make a habit i want to say of uh checking those areas and then you and you talk about coyotes kip the the thing about coyotes that i understand um is where does will frequently run you've got these post rut bucks who yeah they think they're these big badasses and and rightly so they'll turn and score off with a coyote well that's fine but when you've got two or three of them and then you know one's messing with their head area and then you got the other ones hamstringing them, tearing up their Achilles. That's how they usually end up succumbing to them. That's right. Yep, that's right. Now with everybody having trail cameras, you know, you start seeing more of those trail cam pictures of, you know, some pretty gruesome photos, actually, you know, of coyotes uh, attacking deer from, you know, the back. And you'll, you're right, you'll see one, you know, it's distracting them from the front. These deer were just their hindquarters all tore up and bleeding uh, That'd be a bad way to go. Yeah, yeah. And and those bucks at this time of year, you know, they lost up to forty percent of their body weight. Uh, that's another another. They're 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 run down and ragged. So that's right. Yeah. 
what about the nutritional value of a six dollar forty pound bag of deer corn? I mean, it costs about as much as a Happy Meal. So <laughs> I can't imagine that. Good it's, analogy. It's full of uh, high nutritional, um, you know, aspects. Yeah, the thing with corn that that benefits deer or can benefit deer is, you know, you're right. There's not a lot of protein there. There's not a lot of nutrition, but there is a lot of energy. So it's high in energy, and deer certainly can use that during the winter months when there's just not a lot of other uh, good stuff to eat. Now, the one thing with deer, just how they're they're built, they're they're actually built very similar to bears in that they survive winter by living off the fat that they put on during summer and fall. Um, Even if you take captive deer during the winter, they they will lose weight just because that's how deer evolved. They're supposed to lose weight in the winter. So uh, they don't need real high-quality food uh, during the winter because deer aren't growing anyway. They're basically living off that fat. So the key is to allow them to maintain as much of that, that fat as they can and, and enter spring in as good a condition as possible. So where corn comes in is, yeah, it's not the most nutritious thing in the world, but at least by providing that energy, it helps deer maintain body temperature and uh, slow the use of that fat so that they can make it through winter in a better in better shape. Okay. Well, so just overall, it's kind of you know wrapping things up here. What is the QDMA's stance on on uh, feeding, just in in general? With feeding, you know, we certainly like to see people do a bunch of habitat work and enhance habitat for deer and feed deer that way. Um, we're not against feeding, though, and we certainly recognize there can be benefits of supplemental feeding when done properly. So, if there's no disease concern and it's legal. Um, we are, we are not against supplemental feeding. Um, we do encourage folks to m- learn all they can about it and do it either in you know, uh, consultation with a wildlife professional or um, just learn what they can to make sure that they're not doing more harm than good. But uh, we certainly recognize uh, you know, the cultural value of it, and, uh, and certainly if done properly, can, can enhance uh, deer condition. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think down here a lot of uh, folks actually use it more as a management tool. We've got places like South Texas. Where the brush is so thick, if you don't put out some kind of feed, your chances of seeing a deer is not very good. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think that's a reason why a lot of people do it. Um, oh, I think you're right, and, and I've traveled through Texas and uh, spent a fair amount of time in South Texas and, uh, and have, have seen that exact thing. So, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, and, uh, and you're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, good news is that we're kind of in the free and clear, I guess, as far as the uh, acidosis having you know, an effect on an our deer. Um, and I like to feed you around anyway, cause, uh, we've got so many feral hogs that it's nice to, to be able to, uh, to hunt those, uh, year round as well. Um, but, uh, but interesting stuff to say the least. And, uh, and I, I wonder, um, how much of it stems from people that, that don't even hunt that just t- are taking pity on these deer thinking that they, they need their help and that and they're trying to, you know, they're saving their lives when, uh, and actually, they're they're having the exact opposite effect. Yeah, no, you're right. Well, cool stuff, Kip. Uh, certainly enjoy the conversation. Love to uh, to visit with you again sometime in the near future. Who knows? We, I'm sure we there's a ton of topics we could get into. But thanks for shedding some light on this one for us today. All right, that sounds great. Had a good time talking with you. So uh, have a good rest of the week. All right, happy New Year. Thank you. You too. All right, fascinating stuff there on whitetail nutrition and biology with Kip Adams, Conservation Director for the QDMA. Uh, That segment brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. You know, land is the one thing they are not making any more of, and Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping its borrowers 
finance their own piece of paradise for over 100 years. They'll do the same for you, whether you're looking for a hunting property, cattle ranch, or just a place to get away and recreate uh, outside of the big city. Lone Star Ag Credit has you covered. Go to LoneStarAgCredit.com. All right, uh, let's take a break. Up next, we'll be joined by Dr. Louis Harverson of the Sol Ross Research Institute. They've been collecting data on West Texas mountain lions for nearly 20 years. We discuss the findings next right here on the Lone Star Outdoors Show. This land was already sold and there's fire in the valley there's smoke in the sky and it'll teach us how to live free or it'll teach us how to die. Hey y'all, Cable here for my good friends over at Outlaw Outfitters. This veteran-owned and operated outfit will put you on the ducks, to say the least. I've been hunting with them for, gosh, four or five years now. They also do uh, deer, hog, and turkey as well. They have over 15,000 acres they hunt in Collin, Grayson, and Fannin counties. Whether you want to do a turnkey, you know, one-morning waterfowl hunt, or a complete weekend package with authentic Cajun cooking and lodging, it's all right there within an hour of the Metroplex, and you can find them at HuntOutlaw.com. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. Hey, y'all. Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Hey y'all, this is Jason Bowen and you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoors Show. Two to four don't seem like much till you're stuck in eight by ten. He felt guilty damn near all his life, but much more now than then. Got full of holes, the name of that one there, from Jason Boland, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoors Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well. As many of you know, um, I just got back from Colorado probably 10 days or so ago, uh, concluding 17 days worth of mountain lion hunting over three different trips uh, with my good friend Wayne Pinnell. And, uh, and... So I've been fascinated by these animals. If you listened to last week's show, we went into that whole experience in depth. Uh, if you missed it, check out the podcast. But anyway, um, here in the Lone Star State, mountain lions, they're not that common. They are increasing their population just a little bit, showing up in areas that they haven't before. Uh, but one place where they have always had a, a foothold is the mountains out in West Texas. And so the Borderlands Research Institute there at Sol Ross State University has conducted some research. It's been going on for dang near 20 years now on those West Texas lions. And even uh, coming out with a short film here in recent months, 
um, which we'll get into in detail with uh, the executive director of that program, of the entire research institute, uh, Dr. Louis Harverson. But first, this segment of the show is brought to you by Dallas Safari Club Legacy. The 2018 convention takes place next weekend in downtown Dallas. Over 1,850 exhibitors from all over the globe will converge in Dallas, Texas for what I believe to be the premier hunting show in the country every year. Uh, it's Legacy. It's Jan 4th through the 7th, and I've got a pair of tickets right here uh, in my hand. Uh, Expo passes. They're $20 value. They're good for a day, uh, which the event is uh, Thursday through Sunday. But I'll send a pair of tickets to the first person to text in the year that Dallas Safari Club was founded. That's uh, 214-289-7807 if you're interested in winning the tickets. For more info, you can go to Big Game. Org. All right. Well, let's go ahead and bring him on right now. Here to talk West Texas mountain lions with us. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Louis Harvison back to the show. Oh, my pleasure. So, first of all, uh, t- talk a little bit about some of the current projects that you guys have going on, and, and then we'll transition into uh, a little mountain lion discussion. Okay. Yeah. So, the the Borderlands Research Institute it's housed at Sol Ross State University in Alpine. And uh, we manage about 20 projects, maybe as many as 30 each year. And so the projects may vary from mule deer antler growth to the mountain lion project we're going to talk about to looking at hummingbird migration patterns to grassland birds to pronghorn restoration. So it's really a, a gamut of different projects uh, that we, we undertake and supervise and then share those, that information with the landowners and the general public. Okay. And so, actually, like over the last week or so, what have you been doing um, specifically? Uh, for myself, uh, <laughs> I've been on the road. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, part of it is, you know, even though we're housed at the university, you know, 97% of our funding comes from, from private sources. And so part of my job uh, has evolved into fundraising and grant writing and things like that. So that, that uh, eats up more of my time than than I care to admit. I'd rather be outside, uh, you know, catching mule deer or bighorn sheep or something like right. that. But uh, that's just the necessary part of this job. Mm-hmm. Well, somebody has to do it. So, <laughs> uh, well, yeah. So what I wanted to discuss specifically was the recent short film that chronicles the mountain lion research uh, you guys have been doing in West Texas. It's called The Lions of West Texas. It's a, it's a film done by Finn and Fur Films. Um, about how many years of research? Would you say went into not not making the film, but you know was actually documented uh, in this film? Yeah, so we've we've been doing this this project since 2001, and so it's still ongoing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ben Masters is the the producer and, and and the director of the film. Did an outstanding job of of catching basically you know six years of information and wrapping it up into about a six minute film, which is as you can imagine, is a challenge, but I think he, he grabbed the, the key points of that project and, and brought it to light with, with that short film. Mm-hmm. Okay, so y'all been doing this for 17 years or so. Um, how many cats have been uh, documented? And and when I say documented, I don't know if that's just ones you've seen on camera or, you know, uh, only ones that you've collared. What, what went into the study? Yeah, so we, you know, part of, part of the process, of course, this is a an animal that has tremendous home ranges used to occur across uh, the entire state, across uh, all of North America, to be honest. 
And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's secretive, it's mysterious, it's nocturnal, it occurs at low densities. So it's just one of those little ghost animals that it's just really rare to get a glimpse of them. So our, our process of really trying to better understand what that animal does, where it lives, what it eats, all those kind of things, is we capture the animals. And so we'll set up snares or we'll use trained hounds. Uh, we'll, we'll capture them. We'll, we'll sedate them with, with uh, some drugs. Uh, we'll put a radio collar on them, uh, take some measurements, and then give it a reversal, and then they're back on their merry way. And so we don't, other than that one day, which is probably a pretty bad day for mountain lions, right. um, you know, we, we try not to interfere. And so we're really in just kind of an observation from, from afar kind of mentality. So we're not uh, implicating or having uh, implications on survival or diet or movement. So m- most of the time we're able to do this through satellite collars and looking on our Google Maps on our phone or, or laptop or whatever. So it's a, you know, slightly invasive again for that short period of time. But the rest of it is, is you know, you've just got a um, a glimpse into an animal that is just again so so mysterious that it, it's just so so rare. But that was interesting because you said you guys use hounds to to catch them essentially, so you can put those collars on them. Yeah. So when you when you run hounds with uh, with you know a hunting service or uh, what we're doing is, is radio collaring. It's basically the same process. You're looking for sign. Snow's wonderful. We don't get a lot of snow in Texas, right. so it's it doesn't help us much. Uh, and so, you know, everything we're doing, we're just trying to pattern an animal that is, again, just almost invisible. And then once we understand that pattern a little bit, that increases our odds of capture. And so whether that's dogs or, or using these leg hold snares, uh, it, it requires a lot of patience, to mm-hmm. say the least. Yeah. Well, and you guys have caught cats from all ages, from uh, adults to uh, even kittens. Um, I, I imagine just the adults were collared, but those collars provide some interesting facts as far as uh, these huge home ranges. Uh, in the film, I believe it was uh, your wife actually talks about um, 150 square miles, like average home range, and one cat uh, had a 400 square uh, square mile range. I mean, that's just insane how big that is. It it is, and it you know think think I'm I'm thinking about some of your viewers in, in metropolitan areas, you know basically I think the distance from Fort Worth to Dallas going through Irving that's probably 20 miles. So this is basically uh, 400 square miles is 20 miles on each side of a square. So it's it's a, a tremendous, and and they're doing it on foot. They're not taking right. a bus or a bike or anything else. They're they're basically walking barefoot like you and I. I mean they have soft pads like your dog does or your cat does. And that's one thing that we use in our advantage is is they they choose that path of least resistance. So that could be along a ridge or in a ravine or, or a game trail. And so that that's where we kind of pick up on clues on how the animals through the landscape is is understanding how you or I, if somebody threw us out in the middle of nowhere without shoes, how we would walk through the landscape. It's basically the same process. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. And, and one of them traveled from the Davis Mountains essentially to Big Bend National Park. So that's... Uh, Quite a quite a ways. Um, I think that's I think that was over 150 miles. Is that yes? Correct, yeah. correct. And you know, and um, looking at the literature, the longest dispersal that we know of mountain lions based on radio collared animals is actually out of South Dakota. They caught an animal, and that animal dispersed all the way to Oklahoma oh before God. it got hit by a train. Wow! wow. <laughs> uh, so just what a horrible way to go. But just, yeah. that is, you know, I don't know what that is in airline miles. But you know, and they don't dra- they don't travel straight distances. So even when we show, you know, from Davis Mountains to Big Bend National Park, 
you know, we're reporting straight line, but they're probably walking almost twice as much of that in some sort of curvilinear pattern to get mm-hmm. to point A to point Z, whatever that is. Right. Well, and and one of the most interesting things in this film that I that I you know kind of honed in on was um, 200 kill sites you guys um, investigated, and then you came up with um, you know percentage breakdown of what these lions were feeding on. So like 25 percent of their diet was mule deer. Uh, elk, which we have uh, free-ranging elk out there in West Texas, uh, 16%. Whitetail, 14%. They snack on javelina pretty regularly, 12%. Uh, f- finally, something that will eat feral hogs, 9%. Uh, Audad, uh, 4%. And then one that was kind of interesting, coyotes, 4%, uh, which I was, uh, you know, I've seen some crazy videos of lions and coyotes going at it, but uh, I guess, uh, I mean, that's a... That's quite a few coyotes these these uh, lions are taking down, I guess. Yeah, now they and and that's the thing they and and this doesn't even include a lot of the smaller animals. So when we go to a kill site, you know the collars basically tell us where they are. So if there's a a bunch of points in the same general location, that's our that's our green light to go in and identify that kill. Mm-hmm. But think about all the squirrels and jackrabbits and cottontails, and they love porcupines. And so there's a lot of small animals that really don't even get picked up unless you look at their scat, their feces, you don't see that. And so this is this is really good data, and, and probably the best news is that they, we had, didn't find any livestock kills, even though there there are livestock out there. But it, it, it is only kind of a, a coarse look at, at their diet, and we're missing a lot of the smaller things that they just – you know, it's like you and me running into the Easy Mart and grabbing a Snickers. You know, right. it's just there's some bite-sized morsels that they they use that that don't show up in these data. Sure, yeah. So and it it did say livestock zero percent and those uh, other small mammals like fourteen percent and then who knows what else. Um, but you know, you go farther, like just say um, it, we'll just take Colorado where I've where I've hunted them. Uh, they're eat, basically eating mule deer or elk. There is no those are the only options. They don't have. Uh, Havelina, hogs. I guess they could be, you know, catch a, a big horn once in a while, but it um, seems like Texas out there in that area has a quite a few dietary options for them. Yes, and, and even if we move, you know, 100 miles to the south to another mountain range where elk aren't present and feral hogs aren't as abundant, uh, maybe the big horns pop up. I mean, so they, they're adaptable. I mean, they, they evolve basically with deer, so they go after prey that are about deer size that have long necks because that's that's how they're basically capturing or, or killing their animals is by the by the neck uh you know biting the jugular the throat suffocating them biting the their muzzle uh, and so they need that kind of long neck and that's probably why they don't eat as much of javelina or feral hogs and even the feral hogs that they do kill are usually the small ones they don't go after those 300 400 pound boars that a lot of people see and people hunt those are that's too much risk, and so they won't do that unless it's a, a unusual circumstance or they're pushed to the limit or something like that. So they're they're choosing animals that are deer-like as far as just their physical appearances, and you know they're they're effective at it. But that, but they also just to say that uh, they they're not always successful. So we do see, especially when we have some snow on the ground, we can see where they stalk animals. And, you know, the the thought is maybe one in four attempts is actually successful. So it's not like they just, you know, turn on the kill switch and it happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's some, you know, especially as they get older, they become more efficient. But especially as young sub-adults, as they're weaned off, that that's when they are, they'll eat anything, especially those porcupines and rabbits. There's those 
smaller prey are easier to come by, and they're able to kind of piece that together to to sustain themselves. Okay. Well, and the film also mentioned from the from the animals in the study, and this is kind of shocking to me. Only a fifty three percent annual survival rate. So I'm wondering what I mean. I don't know how many of them get taken by hunters or get hit by cars or or what, uh, killed by other mountain lions, but I don't know if you guys have any data as to why that is so low. It It, it is low, and looking at other data across uh, the western states, it's it's actually one of the lowest. You know, the, Texas, uh, the way mountain lions are managed in Texas is they're... Not managed. No rest- <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. It, I mean, there's no restrictions on the harvest. Right. And so they're classified as a non-game. And so, and, and I get that. That's a that's a cultural thing that that's been here a long time, and it's hard to change regs as as you know through time. Um, but it basically just there's no protection for them. And so, as what we're seeing is is mountain lions actually are making a comeback across uh, North America, where really the hundredth meridian, basically the Rocky Mountains, the eastern edge of the Rockies, was their distribution. They're actually pushing east, and we're seeing them pop up again in South Dakota, North Dakota, Kansas, Nebraska, who haven't had lions in you know 100 years or so. They're back in the mountain lion business. Uh, we do see some push into the western Edwards Plateau in the hill country of Texas, and so we're seeing kind of a resurgence of of mountain lions. And it's because the just you know attitudes have changed. There's not as much pressure on them from a hunting standpoint. The hunting that it does occur, like in Colorado, it is designed to be sustainable, so that it, it will always be there as a renewable resource. Oh, yeah. yeah, we had a and, quota, you know, set quota, and, and where we were hunting, and, and if it was reached, then that, that was that was church. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and, and that's and that's where we're Texas, you know, as a as a unregulated non-game animal, you know, it it's there is pressure, and that's what we see in those survival rates in West Texas. Well, so obviously it's houndsmen that would be taking most of them out there in in your neck of the woods. Uh, the ones that I see frequently are, are just, and it happens in the brush country in South Texas and then um, in just various other kind of random spots throughout the state, but it's basically deer hunters. They're sitting there overlooking a feeder, and here's a lion that's probably killed a deer there before and is trying to do it again, and, and that's where it gets whacked. Yeah, and so it actually so in South Texas, I, I did dissertation work on mountain lions in South Texas, and that that was the case. So deer hunters were the number one cause of mortality in South Texas. In West Texas, what we see in this study and some of the others prior to it, it's really the trappers. So uh, setting out traps to protect livestock today. Now that that you know a lot of the ranching is more recreational, uh, protecting their deer resources, their game resources, and so trapping um, is you know is the primary mortality cause in West Texas, whereas in South Texas, it is basically incidental take from deer hunters. Right. Well, so here's a question for you. Um, and, and this is what I really wanted to find out is, you know, are these animals holding steady in West Texas? Or are they increasing or, or are they decreasing? You know, that, that, that's the that's the ultimate question. Uh, that's that's one of the big uh, pushes on our study. You know, we, we see, We've seen lows. You know, I can't remember how many cameras. We have like 60 or 70 cameras out across our study site. And, you know, we'll go months without seeing one on camera. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden we see quite a few. And so there's there's cycles even within that seven years. I think as a whole throughout North America, we're seeing the, the, the population, the distribution get broader. Mm-hmm. And I think the population number is going up. And I think that's how they kind of recolonizes when, you know, they, they have their own carrying capacity. It's not necessarily what we regulate, 
but it's their tolerance of each other because they are solitary. And as animals, you know, uh, re- repopulate, they're they're taking over new habitats. And that's, so I think that's what the east the eastern push that we're seeing uh, in Texas. I think it's been pretty stable. Uh, there's been some good genetic work done uh, out of Texas A&M Kingsville that has looked at some historic genetic work, looking at numbers and uh, heterogeneity and all these things, and then looked at more contemporary numbers. And they didn't notice a bottleneck, which suggests that those animals are, or the populations have basically held their own. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you may see a population blink out in West Texas in a, in a, in a mountain range, but eventually it'll get recolonized. And so it just kind of ebbs and flows, so to speak. And it's, it's really, really difficult for me to say it's increasing or decreasing, but I, I think somewhere in between is, is my political answer for now. Yeah. Okay. So, and I'm going to put you on the spot here, um, because this is basically the last question is, do you think regulation would be a good thing for Texas mountain lions? That, that, that is the hardest question. You know, you know, we used to have tech, have mountain lions, pardon me, just have mountain lions in East Texas. We had them in Blackland prairies. We had them in the hill country. We had them in the panhandle. And we really don't have those mountain lion populations in those ecoregions anymore. Mm -hmm. And but those those eco regions aren't what they were 100 years ago. I mean, there's a whole lot of people. In fact, 80% of Texans live along about a 20 mile width of I-35 and east. And so our our state's really tipping over, so to speak. And I don't know if we have a tolerance for mountain lions in those eco regions because of the population growth and just the urbanization that has occurred. And so if if you had to predict where mountain lions are in the state. We know they're in far west Texas, and and basically about a three or four county swath along the Rio Grande, all the way to to the Gulf of Mexico, is probably the the only habitat that really it, where they occur, and and probably will continue to occur if there's a little bit of protection for them. Mm-hmm. And and the new landowners, you know, since they're trying not they're not raising sheep and goats, and and cattle's even. Not as many as there once were, and they've changed a lot of their husbandry practices. That's actually good news for the mountain lions. So I think they're going to be here uh, for a while, and I and I think uh, what we have going on is 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 good. It certainly can be better if you're just thinking about mountain lions, but it's also a nice balance between agriculture, industry, and 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 conservation. So it's it's a it's not an easy to answer. <laughs> right, right. Well, no, I think you did a great job there. And it's a fascinating animal and one that uh, is kind of, I guess, these days synonymous with the uh, American West, even though they are expanding east. Oh, absolutely. And, and they're just, you know, they're intriguing. I mean, you can't throw a, a mountain lion picture up with somebody not answering question. And we do, you know, we do booths and exhibits and, and we have a, a mountain lion fur out and a mountain lion skull and it absolutely is one of the most favorite things. People come and ask more questions about that than any other display that we have. So it's just one of those intriguing, again, super rare, uh, super carnivores that we still have in the state. And so it, it is a precious resource for, for the state and for, for everybody. Whether you love them or hate them, you, you absolutely respect them. Yeah, there's no doubt. Um, so if folks wanted to find out more about the uh, the Institute, where can they do that if they want to donate? Um, I'm sure you wouldn't turn down any money. <laughs> no, sir. Uh, yeah, so we, we have a, actually a brand-new website that's been launched. It's uh, bri.solross.edu, so BRI for Borderlands Research Institute. And uh, you can also just probably Google Mountain Lions West Texas, and you'll find our study. 
uh, the Lions of West Texas video that's out. You can Google that. So there's there's all sorts of ways to, to come across our, our program. Awesome. Well, uh, Dr. Harbison, we certainly appreciate your time today. Thanks for all you guys do, and I uh, look forward to our, our next visit. Well, Cable, next time you need to come out here and, and help us chase some of these lions. <laughs> yeah, you got a deal. <laughs> I'd love to. Hey, you bet. Thanks so much, pal. Dr. Louis Harbison of the Borderlands Research Institute. Great stuff there on West Texas. Mountain lions, uh, truly fascinating animal. And you all know that I've been tied up with them for about the last year and a half. Uh, that finally came to an end. But I still am intrigued by them and want to know as much about mountain lions as I possibly can. Uh, that segment of the presentation proudly brought to you by Rudy's True Texas-style barbecue and Lone Star Beer the national beer of Texas available this hunting season in the Lone Star Beer Camo Can. Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. Let's take a break. Up next, uh, there is an organization out there that's trying to reintroduce wolves into yet another state. <laughs> it's like deja vu. I'll give you my thoughts on this flawed plan. We'll talk about the state in question and the organization responsible for this lunacy right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Hey, it's Justin at DontTradeItIn.com. Have you ever felt like you didn't get enough for your trade-in at a car dealership? You probably didn't. Trade-ins usually become inventory, and most car dealerships are like other businesses. They want inventory costs to be as low as possible. DontTradeItIn.com buys vehicles for more, guaranteed. Are you worried about mechanical and or cosmetic issues? Not planning on replacing your vehicle? No problem. We'll still make you a cash offer. DontTradeItIn.com even buys customized, off-road, special interest, classic, and exotic vehicles. Head over to DontTradeItIn.com, answer some quick questions, and you get a cash bid on your vehicle in no time. DontTradeItIn.com or call or text us at 469-300-9669. Again, that's 469-300-9669. A rock steady point. A covey rises. Over-unders ring out. Cable here for White Rock Upland Birds, an outfit Bell and I have hunted with many times. Whether you bring your bird dogs or use their polished pointers, hunting quail and pheasant on the White Rock Trophy Ranch is an experience to remember. Located 45 minutes from DFW in Italy, Texas, White Rock will waive the $150 guide fee if you mention the Lone Star Outdoors show. Plus, save $25 off any package if you bring your own dogs. So grab your buddies and shotguns and call 972-880-9068 today. Hey, North Texas sports fans, this is Brian Spagnola, General Manager of Texas Motor Cars in Addison. My family's been in the car business for over 50 years, and I want to show you the difference in buying from a family-owned and operated business. TexasMotorCars.com is an awesome website that lets you do virtually all of your shopping online. We have a professional photographer that takes amazing photos, and we give you all the information that you'll need up front. You can even find out how much we will give you for your trade-in before you ever come in. I take pride in the fact you can come in, choose a car, and be out in less than an hour. We have financing rates starting at 1.79% on pre-owned vehicles and can help almost anybody. Please do yourself a favor. If you're in the market for a pre-owned vehicle of any kind, give us a shot. Let me show you how easy buying a vehicle should be. Visit TexasMotorCars.com or come visit our 20,000-square-foot indoor showroom in Addison. Again, visit TexasMotorCars.com or call us at 1-888-9-TX-MOTORS. And John Henry said to his captain, 
Said a man ain't nothing but a man But you can bring that steam drill around And I'll beat it fair and honest I'll die with that hammer Cable Smith, welcome everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show Powered by Dallas Safari Club Getting a little help there from the man in black Uh, Thanks to our presenting sponsors, Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris And thanks to you guys and gals for tuning in today It's great to be here with you as I'm about to give you my take on one of the most idiotic things I've seen in some time. But before we uh, we get into the great wolf debate, once again, uh, this segment of the show is proudly brought to you by a company and a product that I am proud to endorse. It's called Scent Blaster. And I'm not going to tell you that this thing works if it doesn't. It flat out does. I killed my Oklahoma 9-point beautiful 138-inch buck, a mature bruiser, came running to the scent blaster. And this is a buck that I didn't have a single picture of until the rut. Uh, So an elusive beast for sure. Uh, But the scent blaster did the trick, stopped him at 160 yards, and that was all she wrote. Whether you're hunting hogs, deer, or spring bear, scent blaster is something you need to have in your pack, and you can find it at scentblaster.net. All right, well, (laughs) if you haven't heard about the Sierra Club's genius plan to reintroduce wolves into Colorado. Let me shed some light on it for you. Yeah, Sierra Club is a so-called conservation organization. That is a load of crap. Sierra Club is nothing more than an offshoot of... uh, They're not as bad as PETA or the Humane Society, but they're right there with them. They don't practice conservation. They don't put their money where their mouth is like hunters do. Time and time again, year after year, day after day, we live it day in and day out. These people want to destroy Colorado's elk and mule deer herds. There's no other way to put it. Um, By reintroducing the gray wolf into Colorado, I mean, how stupid can you be? We've seen this time and time again. It hasn't worked in Idaho, Wyoming, or Montana. The original agreement that was made with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service back in 1995 when reintroduction first happened, was 10 breeding pairs and 100 wolves in three regions. And that's total in those three states, 10 breeding pairs, 100 wolves. When those numbers were reached for three consecutive years, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service promised to turn control of wolf management back over to the states. They're still fighting that battle today, the states are. And do you know how many damn wolves exist in the lower 48? Over 5,500 wolves are now in the lower 48, and that's a conservative estimate. And folks often forget about Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan, where their deer herds, their whitetail herds, are being completely decimated by wolves. And we have a serious problem because you know what funds conservation in this country? License sales of cervids. I'm talking about elk, whitetail, mule deer, blacktail, even moose to a lesser extent. Those or the license sales that fund conservation. The piddly $30 wolf license tag? No, that doesn't do anything. It's it's pennies. It's a, it's a drop in the bucket. It's pretty much insignificant. When someone buys a wolf tag, they're, they're generally just buying it in case they see one while they're hunting some other big game species, which they're probably not going to find because wolves already killed them all. Uh you know, it, it's it's incredible what's happened in Idaho. Some of if if you were to pick up a 1970s field and stream on elk hunting, it would tell you the low low unit of Idaho was the best place to elk hunt in the United States. 
There aren't any elk left in that unit. I mean, <laughs> it's it's mind-blowing. Yellowstone, at the time of reintroduction, had 20,000 elk. Do you know how many they have today? And this is not my opinion. These are facts. 4,000. 4,000 elk. Dropped 80%. It's mind-boggling. So when an organization like the Sierra Club says, hey, we need to reintroduce wolves. And I read this article while I was cougar hunting in Colorado. My outfitter showed it to me. It was on the front page of the paper. It said, Colorado needs wolves and wolves need Colorado. I looked at Wayne and said, you guys want wolves? And he goes, hell freaking no, we don't want any wolves here. These yuppies are trying to force it down our throats. And Colorado, unfortunately, is going the way of California. You've got places like Denver and Colorado Springs and Boulder where the majority of the population lives uh, voting and making decisions for all the good old country folk that still reside in that beautiful state. It's just like in, in California where you've got L.A. and San Francisco and San Diego to a lesser extent screwing it up for everyone else. My take on wolf reintroduction is this. The anti-hunters know that this is the soft underbelly of conservation and destroying the hunting community. They understand that non-hunters, folks that are on the fence, for some reason still have a soft place in their heart for the wolf because it happens to look like their neighbor's German shepherd. Uh, they know that, and they will not stop until they've tried to reintroduce wolves into every state and until wolves have decimated our big game herds to the point where people don't even bother buying hunting license. And then when that happens, squashing hunting altogether becomes that much easier. So... We've got to stop wolf expansion. I'm not here to say let's eradicate the wolves. We did that once. Um, and they're here now. They're not going away. And I'm cool with that. Wolves are a beautiful animal, an amazing predator. And their downfall is that they're just too good at their job. They're too good at killing. Um, so they need to stay in Yellowstone. That's where they need to stay. It's plenty big. There's plenty of room for them. There's plenty of food. You know, assuming they don't kill the remaining 4,000 elk. But... <laughs> Uh, that's where they need to be. And then if they get outside of that park, they're fair game. And it's not like hunters are decreasing their numbers. Oh, no, don't listen to that lie because that is a damn lie, and that's all it is. Wolves are expanding their numbers. Every year there are more wolves in the lower 48. And, and did I mention that we now have wolves in Oregon, Washington, uh, and also California? Yep, they've taken up residence in those three states and are protected 100% protected there as well. And when you talk about hunters' impact on wolf numbers, especially in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming, very rarely is a quota met. It's usually, and, and that includes trapping. So hunting and trapping are not doing a damn thing. Idaho Fish and Game, they won't go on public record, uh, but they do shoot wolves out of a helicopter in mass. They do it. And, uh, and they'll tell you off the record, yeah, we have to do that. Uh, just to protect the remaining elk that we do have. And so if a state agency uh, is willing to, to go to the air and sees that as the only way to control these apex predators, that tells you something. Same thing in Alberta, Canada. Black bear outfitter that I hunted with was a gunner in a helicopter. He actually shot the wolves himself. 400 wolves in one year he shot and said he should have shot 400 more and that his deer numbers were declining because of the wolves. So... Colorado, get your heads out of your asses. I know that's very hard, uh, and, and I love your state. It's it's truly 
one of the most beautiful places in the world. Uh, the Rocky Mountains of Colorado are a thing to behold, and I love the animals that exist there, and I want those animals to continue <laughs> to exist there. So Sierra Club, kiss my ever-loving you-know-what. You're a bunch of phonies. You have no business talking about conservation, and you don't speak. For the hunters and anglers who put their blood, sweat, tears, and most importantly, their money into wildlife conservation in North America. And you guys and gals who do fund the conservation initiative, pat yourselves on the back. You deserve it. Uh, okay, rant over. That's my take on wolf reintroduction uh, expanding into any other state anyway. Uh, unfortunately, just looking at the clock, we've got to go. Got to get out of here. Uh, thanks to our guest today, uh, Corey Mason, Executive Director of Dallas Safari Club. Also, Louis Harverson of the Borderlands Research Institute. And, of course, Kip Adams of the QDMA. Uh, we will do it again same time, same place next week. Uh, thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying Happy New Year, and y'all have a great week in the outdoors. I shot your dog. He was on the property. Thought he was a coyote. On the road. Missing some chicken, so I pulled the trigger.